This is the balanced dilemma. We tackle the often uniquely, but not always, female dilemma managing life, work, family, and self. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. At The Balanced Dilemma, we speak with women and men to hear their balanced stories. Our guests are entrepreneurs, reinventors, creators, executives, parents, and partners, telling us what we really want to know. How the heck did they manage that? And can you have it all and all at the same time? A big part of The Balanced Dilemma involves questions related to parenting and family relationships and communication. We're going to learn about a kind of CPR, not cardiopulmonary resuscitation, though we should all know that. Rather, we are talking about conscious parenting revolution, which applies conflict resolution skills to communicating more effectively with children and perhaps partners. And many of the skills may help in business environments as well. Our guest, Catherine Celery, is the CEO and founder of Conscious Parenting Revolution and created the guidance approach to parenting. She's coached parents, educators, social workers, and medical professionals. We're gonna find out what it is and how it works. Catherine is a three-time TEDx speaker and author of the best-selling book, Seven Strategies to Keep Your Relationship with Your Kids from Hitting the Boiling Point. She's a trained mediator with certifications in multiple trauma models, sits on the board of the International Association of Human Values, and ran her own commodities trading business in Hong Kong for 30 years. And if you're wondering where work-life balance fits in, one of her businesses is Balance Work Life. Catherine, welcome to The Balanced Dilemma. Let's start with your personal story, including how you became a parenting expert. It's fair to say it wasn't planned. From a career beginning with a college education, attending law school, and then ending up owning your own commodities exchange business. Tell us about this path that you took. Thanks, Christy. It's so nice to be here. And I love talking about work-life balance because it's an ongoing subject. <laughs> That's right. You, know, you can have it one day and lose it the next. So it's a little bit like golf. Um, uh, right? Yeah. I absolutely. Like yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I never started out thinking, oh, you know, I really want to go into the uh, the field of parenting expertise. But when I started my family, my husband and I were both professionals working in Hong Kong and we faced head on the first, I would say, the lack of skill and training that we had with both of us having, you know, done a lot of schooling in our lives, recognizing that nobody had really prepared us for this, this whole family thing and how to interact with our children in ways that we were proud of or that resonated with our values. So we started looking for trainings and, you know, we did what a lot of people I think do when they find that they've got a gap is we just started looking to figure out how to become as conscious and trained and feel as good about our parenting as possible, because let's face it, it doesn't matter how capable and competent you are in your professional fields, that really doesn't equip you for parenting. Was hey. there a specific incident that made the two of you go, wow, we need help on this? <laughs> I can't remember. Our son was two. So, you know, there's always the, you know, the terrible two thing that goes off in people's heads. And I think I look at it now sort of as the beginning of individuation. 
So the separation individuation stage where they recognize that, hey, you know, I'm not just a part of this. I actually have my own sovereign being and I have my own mind and my own thoughts and my own ideas. And and we were just looking at this human and and each other going, wow, you know, what do we do now? Like we had no idea how to we had the other stuff, you know, one, two, three magic, go to your room, rewards and punishments, all that stuff. And none of it felt right for us. Yeah. So it was really just that that moment of not knowing how to address something, knowing something needed and was required of us in our role as mom, dad. However, uh, what that was, we were at a loss. You know, that really resonates with me because when some of us are high achieving, we think that, oh, this is something I can just fix. I can learn this. I can read about it. And I'm going to be a pro just like at, at, like everything else, like passing the bar exam. Yeah. And the fact is parenting is so much more than that and yeah. not something you could just get a, out of a book and it's organic. And you have this other person that has a very different agenda than you do. And they've got feelings and so do you. And that's the thing I crack up all the time because I I run coaching programs that often I'll have therapists and, you know, people that you wouldn't think would come to a parenting training. And yet they're great with other people's kids. But when it comes to their own and it's their feelings and they're, you know, they're so invested, it's all it's like they know nothing. So, so we get to just start over. So are you saying that parenting is not an inborn skill? It's something we all need to learn. Absolutely. You know, I think that there is this mindset of, oh, it's just like breathing. We're just, we're just going to know what to do. And it couldn't be further from the truth. They're the most complex human relationships that we have. I think we can all reflect on our relationships with our own parents, siblings, and they may or may not have been navigated that well. And I believe that everybody who's in therapy is in therapy because of their family of origin, dysfunctional patterns that weren't addressed. And I talk about it as being just unconscious. Parents are, for the most part, well-intentioned. And really, they do want to have the best dynamics they possibly can. And you don't know what you don't know. And you don't recognize that, wow, this pattern that I'm in, I might have contributed to creating. I didn't know that, which also is empowering because it means I can also contribute to creating a different one. So before we get to the parenting um, methods you have, tell us a little about your pivot though. Like what made you, I understand, we understand needing to learn more to parent effectively. And there's lots of literature and resources yeah. for that, but you actually made a career pivot. What hmm. led you to that? I started, um, we literally, my husband and I took a parenting course. We were in Hong Kong for 33 years. So most of my life is actually overseas. And as you mentioned, I was a commodities trader. So I was, and I'd studied Chinese. So I was really like living my dream. You know, I was able to apply all of the, the things that I really had spent a lot of my life learning in practice. And so no, you wouldn't expect that I would become so enamored with a whole nother field that I would, I kind of stayed in it, a hand in it, but my passion, the thing that gets me up in the morning, the thing that I loved was being able to impact people's lives. Having come from, I would say, a very dysfunctional family, 
lots of love. Nobody ever questioned that everybody loved each other, but the way that the communication was handled was was something that there was there was an echo. And I just never wanted that to happen in my family of origin. Did you always want to be a mother and have your own family? Not so much. I mean, it wasn't like I was one of those kids who was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to grow up and get married. I was one of the kids who was like, I'm going to grow up and be president of the United States. I mean, you know, that's where I'm going. Um, and so then this time, it's the classic. You hit your 30s and you're like, oh, God, you know, maybe I should have a baby. And so then I did. I was 32 going on 33 when we had our son. And so an older mom uh, at that stage running my own firm. And I can remember we had a nanny who would bring Sam in. I'd nurse him. She'd take him for a walk, bring him back a few hours. So that's how I integrated him into my um, my trading practice. Were there any conscious decisions about how your, you and your husband would share responsibilities? I think that um, there weren't really because I just happened to marry one of those people who was so considerate that he's really, I mean, he's highly evolved, you know, call him a Renaissance man. You know, he's the cook in the family. His mom was getting her PhD, his father, both doctors. And so he grew up like, if I want to eat well, I have to learn how to do it myself. And so he's a natural. I don't even think about like going in there other than to help with dishes. So yes, you know, I was very fortunate that there wasn't that huge conversation, but there are big conversations needed. Ironically, our daughter is getting her PhD now in clinical psychology, and her research focus was on the impact of pregnancy on the father. Oh, we and might have to said, talk to her. That sounds oh, great. You got to have her on. This is such interesting research. And there aren't, it's at USC. That's where she did her undergrad. And then she stayed and did research before she started her PhD. And it's one of the longest longitudinal studies. It may be the longest. Wow. And her, yeah, her PI has all of this data in research where they're able to look at biomarkers and see from testosterone levels and all the rest of it, what kind of dad that's going to be. I mean, I'm waiting to see if they can predict how many of those marriages fail. Wow. That's so interesting. So you're a working mom, you have a business, you have a caretaker for your child. looks like you're juggling it all. How long did you maintain that, uh, that balance life at that point, how, how long did that last? I think it really helps if you have the au pair or the nanny or someone that everybody a really likes and that you trust and believe in, because as working moms, we know that just somebody to be there when they get home from school, while you're on your way back, you know, these little things just make it so much smoother. So we were so fortunate living in Hong Kong for the years that my children were growing up, that that was very, very easy to organize. I think it's more difficult in other countries. You know, that's a good question. We've had this conversation with other um, uh, people from other countries. Do you think it is easier to handle some of these parenting issues in other countries? Is there more support in comparison Absolutely. to the United States? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in Hong Kong, the um the au pair situation is pretty normal and i would say it's not even a socioeconomic thing it's really across the board whether you're it's affordable um and what we recognize is it's also the number one source of gmp for the philippines 
So they're, really? they're yes, it is their largest source of revenue. So these women who come and work in families overseas are making more money than doctors in their own country. And wow. they're providing a huge amount of GMP. And they also are supporting like not just their own children, but but like villages. So it's a huge, huge contribution that they're making not only in my life and other families' lives, but also in the lives of their own families and generations. So when did you start your business, um, in, in the business we're talking about today in this timeline? Yes. Yeah, so our son actually um, is 29 last week and he was two. So that's when I really started my own training, which went on for about um, three or four years. I just, there was, there was one particular trainer. I took her course every six months, every six months, every six months. And she said to me, you know, um, I think you've got it. And I said, well, it's one thing to have it intellectually. I had that first go. It's a whole nother game to be able to change my own automatic responses to situations. So that's the deepest level of change. That's unconsciously unskilled. I was consciously skilled early, early on, but I didn't want to just be consciously skilled, like running through my mind. Okay. Who's got the problem? How do I respond? Which skill do I use? I wanted to be at the point where I just had deeply embedded in my fibers, this right. compassionate, empathic, connecting response, not screaming a curse word when you've just stepped yes. on a Lego and you <laughs> told them to clean it up. But at this point in the story, mm. Catherine, you are uh, doing this for your own education. This yes. isn't a business model. So when did it change? Exactly. When did you say, I got to share this? I got to, I could do something with this. It was actually when the trainer that was there um, was moving and she approached me and she said, you know, would you like to take over the trainings in Hong Kong? And so at that stage, I became a certified trainer for um, what's called Thomas Gordon's model. And I ran that program initially when she left town. And that was the beginning of me moving more and more out of the trading space. And and at that stage, I'd had a little factory I'd built in Northern California or uh, China, and I was running kind of ran itself. So it was a really good pivot point for me. So um, what is Thomas Gordon's model and why did Thomas you Gordon's pivot model, away from it to do your own? Yes. So I ran it. I loved it. I love his work. He is a giant in the field. He was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize three times. Wow. And um and I I embraced everything and thank him for everything. I I think pretty much everyone stands on the shoulders of Thomas Gordon. Anyone in this field stands on his shoulders. He was so impactful. And it was interesting because I was I was trained in a model that he developed and stopped training people in America to teach. They moved strictly into leadership effectiveness training and were really using the same skills in the corporate setting. That model, however, was still being taught and trainers were still being trained in Australia. So I had gone, gotten my certification through the Australian Institute. It's called the Effectiveness Institute of Australia. And they had a conference and I went down for the conference and the keynote speaker was a woman named Dr. Louise Porter, who's a child educational psychologist who has a master's in gifted, a master's in learning struggles, disabilities. And I sat next to her at the, um, the banquet and I just listened to her keynote, which was captivating. 
And I bought her book, which was called Children Are People Too. She's written like 18 books. And I took her book home and I started reading it. And she diverged from Gordon in some very interesting ways. And so I wrote her and I said, you know, this isn't what Gordon says. And she says, yeah, I know. And I said, well, are you sure about this? And she said, I feel pretty confident. And I was like, no way. So we started a dialogue. And over the course of about a year, um, we we just were pen pals. And then I brought her to speak at my children's school in Hong Kong. And she said, she was staying at my home and she said, oh, I see you've got Marshall Rosenberg's book on nonviolent communication. I said, yeah, I bought it. And she said, well, have you read it? And I said, not yet. And she said, it's the best book I read last year. So I devoured it. At which point I went, oh my God. And it sort of like blew the hinges off of sort of what I had been teaching. And I recognized that there were these other dimensions. And that's when actually Louise approached me and said, I think we need to write our own program. So when we wrote the guidance approach, it was together. I got to jump in here. I actually made a note as you were talking, I have done DBT training, dialectic Mm. behavioral therapy. And I found that that's supposed to be a behavioral model for uh, mental health issues, but I've used those skills in business settings so many times and you're reinforcing it by saying Thomas Gordon, how to talk to children works for leadership. Yes. I mean, so you're all of the skills you've brought to the table were useful in this final model that you put together. Exactly. So, and, and I, what I, I understood from Gordon's model was it's the foundation and Gordon was actually at the University of Chicago. And when he was at the University of Chicago, he was also there with somebody named Eugene Gentland, who was kind of like the final piece for me. So when I was exposed to Gentland's work, I recognized that it's not just our external dialogue and communication, it's our internal dialogue and communication. And, and Rosenberg really works that internal conversation deeply. And Gendland, again, took it even further where he's talking about really just how there are a sense of something that's going on within all of us and how do we connect with that something and the language to be able to to establish a strong core sense of self. So tell us what is Conscious Parenting Revolution? Yeah, so the Conscious Parenting Revolution is founded on the principle that we don't know what we don't know. And so, as I kind of indicated earlier, when we're in our dynamics and communicating and we're getting outcomes that we don't like, we can look at it as, I have no control over this. Or the Conscious Parenting Revolution would say, you may find you're contributing to this in ways that you didn't even realize you were. And so if we can become more conscious of the hidden messages, then we're able to communicate in ways that will actually bring about different relationships and outcomes. So it's an example. Sure. So for example, we talk about um, if you're experiencing a behavior of your child's and you don't want that behavior you might go into saying something like, stop it. Or if you don't, this is what's gonna happen to you. So that's the use of consequences. 
which is pretty popular. And I would say most everyone is using some kind of form of rewards and punishment. What you didn't realize when you did that was that you were activating retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. Three R's. Three R's. 75% of behavioral disruptions are the three R's. So I've got this initial problem. Can you repeat those again? The three R's? Retaliation, rebellion, and resistance. So they're resentment flows. And whenever I have started working with someone, I, I always, I'm just, I've got my ears like this, listening for one of the, or all of the R's. And they're always there. Because we're always in reactivity to the behavior that we don't like. And that's when we lose our temper. And that's when we yell and scream. And that's when we tell them to go to their room. And that's when we say no TV or give me your iPhone or you can't go to your friend's house or whatever it is. And we think that by doing that thing, it's going to eliminate the behavior that we don't like. It might, but not usually long term. And what it does also activate are what we call the secondary problems. And so the secondary problems are the slam doors, I hate you, mommy, kicking the dog, mean to their sibling. All of these other problems are generated because of the way that we approach the initial problem. Most parents don't know that. So can you walk us through a scenario? Because I'm going to raise my hand here, Laura, and say I've experienced a lot of what Catherine's describing here. here. Absolutely. (laughs) So so walk us through how we can do it differently. Okay. So do we want the do we want the scenario and then how we could have done it differently? Yes. All right, let's do that. So um you're let's say your six-year-old or seven-year-old or whatever has got all their toys all over the dining room table. And you say to them, you know, hey, we're getting ready for dinner. You know, could you pick those up, please? That'd be great. And you go on and you're making, you know, salad or whatever. And they do nothing. They absolutely ignore you. And so then you turn around and you're like, you know, hey, it's really, it's time. So, you know, let's get those toys picked up. One, two, and then you start counting, like somehow that's going to make a difference. Now it might make a difference if they're terrified of you. So if you want to use fear as the cornerstone of your relationship, then fear will get them to change, but not for the reasons you wanted. So they may change because they're afraid of what you're going to do to them, but they're not changing because they're being considerate of your needs. And what we're trying to do with conscious parenting is to get changes in behaviors for the reasons that we want, which is for children to develop this skill that we just have under sort of like consideration, as opposed to changing behavior out of obedience or compliance, which is dangerous, or because I'm afraid of you, which is a terrible foundation for a relationship with your family. So instead of the one, two, three, and what I'm gonna do to you, what I love to say is when you're being ignored, or you're essentially getting a no, I won't, even if they don't say it, they're not changing their behavior. We get to change our mind about what's going on here. So they can't hear me. They can't hear me. I obviously am frustrated by that. So I get to spend a little time with what's arising within and be with that part of me, like self-compassion, like, oh, it's really hard for me when people don't just cooperate instantly, you know, and then you do some breathing exercises. But then you recognize, well, something's coming up for them that's getting in the way of cooperation, because I believe that actually we're all innately interested in other people and their feelings, too. 
I don't think that children are unkind or selfish. I just think something else is going on. So that's where we just become curious. Hey, look, I've noticed that you're really not wanting to pick up your toys. And so I'm guessing that there's something about the way this is that's really important to you. Is that true? Yeah, mom, you know, I've been working on this all day long and I've got everything set up just the way I want it. I see. So you don't want to just take it all apart because you feel like this has kind of been your life's work today. Yeah, you know, and now we're now we're in a conversation, right? And I've connected where they are, their point of resistance. So if you can just connect at the point of resistance and see it as something in them that values the way things are is having difficulty just doing what I want. As okay, opposed so to being disrespectful or disobedient or, you know, any of those labels. Okay, so this is all happening while the water is boiling for the pasta and the asparagus in the oven is about to burn. How do you so, as the parents yeah. step yes, away to do exactly. this? Exactly. And so this is why I like to say schedule your problems. Because if you do it then, that's the worst time to do it. You have no bandwidth at all but most of us know where these flashpoints are and aisle so six I <laughs> aisle six in the supermarket <laughs> see you already know it's I, aisle six I, I, so you can talk about here. aisle six anytime you want you don't have to wait till you're on aisle six plan your problem conversations because we know aisle six is a problem we also know when we get on the airplane everybody wants the aisle seat so we know that we know that today, even the trips in three months. So start talking about these problems earlier when you've got more bandwidth, when they've got more bandwidth. And a lot of times these are problems that happen over and over and over and over again. And so we call that a habit. So when people have habituated behaviors that we find are difficult all the time, you can't assume that I can just say one message to you and that you'll change your behavior. We know we have to bring out the big guns, which is that we really have to sit down with like a pad of paper and a pen, and we need to sit in conversation about, you know, there's this thing I've noticed that happens every morning when it's time for school, is that you don't wanna get out of bed, and then I lose my temper, and then you slam the door, and then when we finally, you know, everybody goes their separate ways, we all feel really bad about each other, and I just don't want that to happen anymore. What do you think? And then I'll probably say, I don't like mornings either, mom. I I think we should just try to figure out how to make them better. What do you think? Yeah, let's do that. All right, well, let's take it on, you know? And then now you're in collaborative problem solving mode. And we know the person who has to change their behavior is the one who has to be involved in figuring out how to do that because they're in a habit. And if you want to change habits, if you've ever read the book, The Power of Habit, we know it, it requires quite a bit of creating an atmosphere. And I believe in psychological safety. And if we want to have that? communication, we have to have psychological safety. What do you mean okay. by that? So psychological safety in the workforce, psychological safety at home. Psychological safety is that I can make mistakes and not be afraid when I do, that I'm going to have something taken away from me or that I'm going to be punished. So back to if we use rewards and punishments as our modality to discipline, we create an atmosphere in where kids are highly anxious, very afraid to screw up and make mistakes. And what we know from all the research, right? Because we're research driven is that people perform the best, take the most risks when they feel like it's okay to screw up. 
So put up a great big sign in your house that says, if you haven't made a mistake today, you're not learning. You know, mistakes are welcome, right? Everybody, because it is not just an individual family. It's a societal issue. We are not allowed to be human, to have imperfections. And we're creating this atmosphere with our children where they become, I think we have an epidemic of highly anxious kids, by the way. Yeah, let's and talk about that. A lot of it has yeah. to do with home. Is that not just because of COVID, which is oh, gosh, no. increased anxiety? So, so tell yes. us about that. Yeah, it, it happened before COVID, but I think COVID was really interesting because what happened with COVID was that kids were able to stay home. For a lot of kids, that worked really well. And it worked really well because they had anxiety at school. And maybe they were coping with the anxiety, but when they experienced an atmosphere in which they weren't like, will I get invited to the birthday party? Will I not get invited? Will somebody sit with me at lunch? Will somebody not sit with me at lunch? Will I be alone on the playground? I mean, these are things that can really, really be raw and very hard on people's nervous systems. And so these little folks who were experiencing these kinds of things and just barely getting by, and maybe nobody even noticed and nobody was even talking about their struggles with them so that they didn't feel so alone in it. When they got to stay home, they were like, oh, this is much better. And then going back to school, I can't tell you the number of families who I got to work with where their kids were on strike. They're not gonna go back. They were like, no, I won't. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well then this is an opportunity for us to figure out all the things that weren't working and to start to work with those things in ways that never happened before so that they can also, we want to empower our kids to know that they can make a difference. We want to empower our kids to know they're not victims, right? And a lot of kids, I think, fall into the, somebody has power over me and makes me feel problem. And that's also one of, I would say, the cornerstones of the conscious parenting revolution is to really deeply ingrain in all of us. Nobody makes me feel. As long as I believe other people are making me feel good, other people are making me feel bad, then I'm always at someone else's mercy. And my happiness is too important to put in someone else's hands. And so this is crucial. So many light bulbs are going off. Um, Maura and I have spoken before about styles of parenting, tiger mom, dolphin dad, snowplow or helicopter parents. How mm. does that factor into mm. your uh, modality that you're advocating for? Well, you know, when we were talking a minute ago about like, what's the difference? What are some of the situations that are different with conscious parenting? Well, one of them would be the recognition that when you are helicopter parenting, there's also a hidden message in that. And the hidden message is that you're not capable and competent. And that I need to be here because otherwise you won't be able to handle these situations on your own. And that's not a message anybody ever intends to communicate, but it is actually a message that's being communicated. And children began to feel like I need someone else to be able to manage this. I can't manage it myself. Is there a difference between mothers and fathers in this process? I know you've had, you know, you've told us sure. your husband's uh one of the best models out there, but how is there a different message for mothers than fathers in this program? Here's my experience. My experience is that um, either one can be playing the role. So you can have the helicopter mom and the dad who is not that way or vice versa. 
So it's not really a gender issue. And oftentimes I do find though that one parent plays that role and one doesn't. And so I guess you could say there's a little bit of balance in that. But I think for us, another part of conscious parenting is to recognize I'm afraid of water. So am I projecting onto my children that they need to be afraid of water? And so, you know, rather than me being with that part of me that's afraid of water and, and developing a healthy relationship with that something in me, instead, I don't develop the relationship internally and I just take it and I put it on my kids. And then before you know it, they also are afraid of water. So we need to be so good about stewarding our own worlds so that we don't inadvertently pass our own concerns and worries because I had this bad thing happen, you know, when I was four or whatever onto them. And this I see across the board. So do you need the, in a two parent home, do you need the parents to be on the same page about conscious parenting? It helps, but rarely happens. So it helps, but rarely happens often in to be, yeah, I mean, most of my clients are women, right? It seems like women are the ones that are looking and more receptive. Having said that, I've had so many great men clients. So, you know, again, it's not a necessary, but if I were to do like percentage wise, I would say more women are looking and open to, um, I, I just have a new client that just started with me and she's, you know, she's a trainer, she's a coach, she's this, she's a, and again, we're back to the same thing, but when it comes to my family, when it comes to my kids, when it comes to me, <laughs> everything, all my buttons are pushed. <laughs> right. It's like the uh, shoemakers ki whose kids have exactly. no shoes. You exactly. said that you're not in favor of using rewards and punishments or really consequences, but what about the natural consequences. You That's know, fine. if you're mean to your friends, they may not invite you. Exactly. Or that's okay. That's absolutely fine. Yeah. I mean, that is probably the number one way we learn, right? Is that, you know, we forget to bring our homework to school and the teacher um, is irritated with us. And then we realize, ooh, you know, they're, they're not to get to go outside at lunchtime. And they may have their own things that they do. And, you know, I, I, I'm firmly opposed to keeping kids in from recess, like firmly opposed. And I will advocate for anyone who's suffering that because most of the time it's kids that may even have trouble sitting still. And then they get in trouble and are told they can't go out to recess when the one thing they needed to do was to go out and run around for half That's an hour. Right. And it's Push like, ups. oh my God, are you kidding me? This Jumping is jacks. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Which brings me to kids with special needs. Does this work with them? Because it doesn't, oh, it's not no. linear the same way you would expect. Yes. There are rage issues that stem from other things. There are medication issues. Yes. So how do you make So I think this is, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that when your primary interest is in connection and understanding someone else's perspective, then the kids that are feeling like you don't get me and that enrages them. You just don't have that problem here. Oftentimes we have parents who are not adept at listening. They, they think listening is getting the other person to do as they're told. And that that's how I know they're listening when that's really just obedience and compliance. And the person on the other side of that knows that if they don't do it, that you know something valuable to them will be taken away. So they do it out of concern for what's going to happen to them. 
So inadvertently, parents are reinforcing focus on self, focus on self, when what they really want is they want to get the child to focus on their impact that they're making on the people around them. But they're using a modality that's almost guaranteed not to create that level of consideration. It's a higher skill. But obedience and compliance, I can use that more easily. Parents use it because it's easier to implement, they think. But they have to use it over and over and over and over and over again, or they have to create so much fear and dependence that they have such a damaged relationship that the minute that child is old enough to fire their parent, they will. Right. And I'm sure this comes out when they're older and they've been repressed and that obedience, uh, you know, those wavelengths have been ingrained, then they can say, well, I'm just not going to do that. And that's their opportunity to rebel. So it does, you know, come out in the wash at some point. Or lie. Or lie. It does. Yeah. And that's lying as a coping mechanism. And so when parents say, you know, but my son or daughter lied to me and they want to make that the problem, that the child is lying. And if you know, you know, you know, lying is simply coping with the fact that I can't reveal to you the truth, because if I do, it depends on the family. Maybe it's just that you take stuff away from me and lock me in my room for another week, or maybe it's worse. Maybe you hit me. So one concept we've discussed here, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is the concept of lead parent. And it's interesting you say most of your clients are women. So is this just another example of some task we have to take on as a lead parent to negotiate the behavior in the house? Why are we not able to share this more holistically and as a team? It's wonderful to do it as a team. And I find that sometimes people are afraid that they're going to be made to be wrong or they're going to be made to be bad or that this is somehow their fault and they're going to be blamed. So if you, again, this is back to psychological safety. So I've known, I I mean, this has happened over and over again, where the mom will be the one who reaches out and joins the training and slowly the, the husband will get more and more involved. And the husband gets more and more involved because it's all under this cloak of no fault, no blame, no guilt, no shame, no fault, no blame, no guilt, no shame. We just have to recognize that we were under a spell. We were just kind of unconsciously moving through a parenting journey based on some kind of transgenerational imprinting that more often than not is laced with traumatic experiences of our own, which is why our kids trigger us so much. Because when we acted that way, we were put in our room or things happened to us. And now they're doing that thing that was so dangerous that got us in so much trouble. We have to suppress it. So this is where the consciousness of, oh, wow, I see where this is coming from in me. And oh my God, I'm so glad I'm aware of it. So I don't do the thing that they did to me, to you. And so as men more often are listening and they begin to go, well, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense. Then they get in the room and I can, you know, they might start like right over here on the edge, you know, and you can barely see there's a human and then a little bit more until I might even say, is that, you know, is that wrong? Is that- <laughs> How can we use this conscious parenting technique to improve work-life balance. Definitely. So this is the guidance approach to parenting, which is really a 
it's a connection based approach to conflict resolution, which is why, you know, in the leadership space, a really good leader isn't one that just barks orders and commands people to do as they're told. However, I think there's still a lot of leaders who lead that way. I'm the boss. This is what I told you to do. You need to do it. And there are people in those circumstances where, you know, within themselves, they're like, well, so many of my, we use a needs-based paradigm. You know, so many of my needs are met through this work that I can't leave it because then I'm not sure how I'm going to meet those needs. And those are usually our, you know, safety and survival needs. So how do I be with this person in a way that I don't feel quite so abused? And so this is where the assertiveness comes in. And maybe just teaching people to say, you know, I can see this is really important to you um, and that you would really like me to, you know, do la, la, la. I'm having trouble with that right now because of blah, blah, blah. What do you think about and empowering really the person will have more skills than the so-called leader. And let's hope they get reflexive. This has been quite an interesting talk. I have to ask you one question, though. It sounds like you've had careers in different fields. And one thing we ask all of our guests, can you have it all and all at the same time? Do you think that's possible? Or did you think you needed to be in a different space to try out this new parenting uh, phenomenon that has become your new career? Um, I think that over, you know, the the 20 something years now that I've been doing this and I've been so blessed, I've had lots of speaking opportunities and this, that, and the other thing. And I do think that traveling and not being home at one stage was really hard on our daughter and there was a resentment flow and it was definitely, you know, for me where I needed to kind of like get clear about what was the most important thing at that moment in my life. And so for me, I, I really did step back from a lot of international speaking. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather be here just picking you up from school if that's what's going to make a difference to you. So you know how much you mean to me. And so, yeah, I made changes. And and those, I'm, and I'm glad I did, you know? And so maybe I missed a gig here or a gig there. And of course, I think we're all about creating impact. Um, and that's what gets me up in the morning. And you're doing it now. So I'd like to um, tell you that you can find us at thebalancedilemma.com where you can listen to old episodes. You can also find us on social media at The Balanced Dilemma Podcast on Facebook and LinkedIn. Please share us and rate us. And Catherine, please tell our tell us where we can find your books and your message. So if you want to get the book, I actually suggest you go to freeparentingbook.com. And if you go to freeparentingbook.com, you'll be able to get my seven strategies to keep your relationship with your kids from hitting the boiling point. You can also reach out on catherinecelery.com, which is S-E-L-L-E-R-Y. A lot of people are like the vegetable and I'm like, well, not exactly. Um, and that actually gives you access to both of our sites, which is the Work-Life Balance corporate site, as well as the Conscious Parenting Revolution, which is more for schools and educators and parents. Catherine, it's been wonderful talking with you. Um, thank you. And thank you all for listening. I'm Maura Carlin. And I'm Christy Derrico. Thank you.